Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Our uh, scripture reading for this morning will come from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. Uh, so hear now the word of the Lord. <clears throat> for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For considering your calling, brothers and sisters, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might be boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that it is written... Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this is God's word. Uh, Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we open your word that we would be guided by your vision of power. Your vision of what is wise. And it's very different than what we think. And so I pray you'd open our eyes to see your word that we might better See this world the way you've made it. And I pray and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the peak of human power? The height of human brilliance? Human wisdom? Uh, We may have witnessed it uh, this summer in the cultural phenomenon Barbenheimer. At the same uh, time, two movies were released to critical acclaim, Barbie and Oppenheimer. Uh, And this caused some couples to make a deal because uh, one gender had very little interest in Barbie. I'll let you decide what gender you think that was. Another really wanted to see Oppenheimer, and so there were stories of couples making deals and seeing both movies together at the same time, hence Barbenheimer. One movie clearly tailored toward men, a a tale about human power and war, might. 
and one clearly tailored toward women, about women's experience in a culture dominated by men, calling society to be a place where women can have access to all the material success they desire. Both movies presented a vision of human power, human brilliance, success, influence, might, and power. That's how our world runs. And the letter I just read for us was all about uh, how we view human power and wisdom. And that city, Corinth, viewed human power and wisdom through money, success, might. The city of Corinth. It was an up-and-coming city. It had a dynamic economy. Many people were moving to Corinth to make it in the world. To make it on the world's terms. Money, success, influence, power. And to the Christians in this city, Paul says, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the power of, or the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. What in the world is he talking about? (laughs) What does he mean when he say that? Why is he saying that about human power and human wisdom? Well, to those of us, and I'm assuming you're in the similar uh, position I am, to those of us who obsess over human power and wisdom and intelligence, uh, Paul has three words for us in this city in Corinth. The cross, the choice, and the boast. The cross, the choice, and the boast. He starts with the cross. For the message of the cross, verse 18 Now, I grew up in a a Christian environment that was very hostile to any type of human wisdom or learning. So I remember in high school when I began to learn about uh, the theory of evolution and my science teacher telling me that the earth was billions of years old, uh, where human beings came from, I, I really struggled with how as a Christian I was to respond to those things I was hearing about in high school. And they were real questions to me. I felt like they were fair questions to ask of God. But when I took them to some Christians, they were dismissive. Didn't take my scientific arguments that I was encountering very, very seriously. Which only made those questions in my mind grow. Gratefully, I eventually discovered people who took my questions seriously and they they helped me. But I, I named this experience because, one, I suspect there are many people in this room who carry those same questions. How does my, my faith align with science? But I also name that because we might be tempted to hear what Paul is saying and think that what Paul means here is, is this. That human learning can't be taken seriously. Your science and your faith questions are, are foolish. Stop asking them because the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. Stop asking those questions. You, you can't get anywhere with them. Is that what Paul is saying? Check your mind at the door. I don't think so. Because Paul is critiquing two cultures. And how those two cultures believed and thought about God. And he makes it clear in verse 22. First he says, for Jews they demand signs. When they're looking at at God, they look at God and they expect God to to do certain things, to perform signs. That was the culture in which Paul grew up in. And if you've read through the Gospels of 
uh, Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is a constant theme of conversation. People demanding signs from Jesus. And it always confused me because Jesus does perform incredible signs in the Gospels. But people kept demanding more signs from him. Why? Why wasn't what Jesus was doing enough? Why were there more signs required for the, the many Jewish people who saw his miracles to believe in him? Well, the reason for that, or one of the reasons for that, is that the Jewish culture expected God, when his Messiah came, to use the power of God for their political aims. So the belief was the, the Messiah would come along and drive their Roman oppressors out from Jerusalem. So the Messiah was going to be a, a figure of great human political power. And that's why when you read through the Gospels, the people keep asking Jesus to, to do more signs. It's as if they, they were saying to Jesus, listen, it's really great that you, you healed that random blind guy, but could you go and now kill some Roman soldiers so we can have our freedom again? Could you kick Rome out of here already? Their vision of Jesus and the Messiah was one of great political power. I know that can be hard to imagine, but imagine people who primarily view God and Jesus only as the means by which they can grab political power for themselves. One guy got that, thank you. We might be entering into a year where a lot of people are trying that. But Jesus said no to all that. They could, uh, not, they could either commit themselves to Jesus or their own personal vision of politics. But they could not have both. But it was actually, it was worse than that. It wasn't just that Jesus refused to join the politics they demanded of him. But actually, instead of driving Rome out of Israel, Rome drove Jesus' life out of him. They were waiting for Jesus to kill some Roman soldiers, prove his power, and instead Roman soldiers gathered around him, mocked him, and killed him. The politics of Jesus was to die for his enemies. And most people want nothing to do with that. The reign of Jesus is one of great power, but it's the power of dying for your enemies. The power of Jesus is the power of weakness, of humility and service, of a gentle and humble heart who gives his life away to others. And most people don't want anything to do with that. Many self-professed followers of Jesus don't want anything to do with that. And Paul names that. To us who want power from God. To have our way in the world. Have our politics in the world. Paul says, listen, the cross is a stumbling block to you. If you want earthly political power and might and force, the cross just is not going to be something you want. Because how do you even begin to argue with someone? The most powerful being in the universe, God himself killed on a cross by a few Roman soldiers in a backwards part of the Roman empire very few people cared about. The messianic king was killed. His kingdom was inaugurated because he was defeated. <laughs> it's a message of weakness. And we don't like losers. And Jesus lost. 
It's just the other day, my, my 10-year-old son was making fun of me, and he put an L on his head and, and just mocked me for a moment. <laughs> we hate losers. And Jesus lost. The most pow- one of the most powerful earthly militaries and powers the world has ever known made a fool of him, mocked him, and killed him. Good luck preaching that, is what Paul is saying. <laughs> But Paul wasn't just critiquing Jewish culture. He's also critiquing Greek culture. So for Jews to mend signs, they want to see God move in power in the world. But but Greeks, the other culture he speaks to now, they seek wisdom. See, for Jewish people, God proved his power to you through defeating your political enemies. For the Greeks, God was something you discovered through debates, intellectual discovery, and study, and reading. And so to understand how Paul is critiquing Greek culture here, we have to understand the city in which he's writing to, the city of, of Corinth. And so I want to name two important facts about Corinth. One I named last week, but, but the first is that the city of Corinth is at the crossroads of Rome. And so take a look at this map. That, uh, the Google pin drop, that's where Corinth is. So you notice, if you're going from the south of Greece to the north, to Athens, you have to go through Corinth. And as I mentioned last week, if you were to, to sail, you could, could drop your uh, ship off at one part of Corinth, walk your uh, cargo three or four miles, then put it on another ship, and save yourself uh, sailing all the way around the south part of Greece. And so that meant it, it was the crossroads of Rome. It was an economic hub, a travel hub, a place where tons of people were moving in order to taste human power and strength. So that's one part of the city. But the second is the city of Corinth loved debates. The streets of Corinth were filled with philosophers, intellectual conversation, the best of Greek wisdom. But it was also like over the top. It was, it was sort of like the ancient Facebook. People arguing with total strangers with one another. But at least that was in person. Like ours is just all online. But some, pe- some people found this part of Corinth really invigorating. But not all. There was a Greek orator uh, named Dio Christosim, and here's what he wrote about the city of Corinth. He writes, Crowds of wretched sophists, or, or philosophers, crowds of wretched sophists around Poseidon's temple shouting and reviling one another. That's why I compared it to Facebook. And their disciples, as they were called, fighting with one another, many writers reading aloud their stupid words, many poets reciting their poems while others applauded them, many jugglers showing their tricks, many fortune tellers interpreting fortunes, lawyers innumerable perverting judgments, and peddlers not a few peddling whatever they happened to have. And if you remember back to last week, this sounds a lot like what Paul is describing at Corinth. I'm of Paul. No, I'm of, I'm of Apollos. No, I'm of, I'm of Cephas. Into this culture of debates and arguments and human wisdom, into this city and this culture, Paul says, listen, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. Just imagine going into the Corinthian debate scenes and being like, I know the true God. Trust me, a crucified peasant from some backwaters town you've never heard of is the creator and redeemer of the universe. It's foolishness. 
When humans go to access the story of the cross, the story of Jesus, it's, it's absurd. And that's one thing here that Paul is saying. He's saying using human categories, the message of the cross is foolishness. It only makes sense to those who are being saved. But he's, he's saying something else. Something really important, um, I believe. Because it's not that power and wisdom don't matter. It's not that Paul is saying, check your mind at the door. Paul will actually spend most of his uh, 1 Corinthians talking about the power and wisdom behind the Christian life. Many commentators would say that 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 is some of the most persuasive Greek rhetoric that's ever been written. So the irony shouldn't be lost on us. Paul writes a brilliant argument saying, arguments don't work. So he's not saying check your mind at the door, but I think he is saying this. Human position, human beings are in no position to judge God and how he acts in his world. And so think about again the the peak of human power. Maybe going a little bit deeper than Barbenheimer for a minute. See, historians talk about the, the Pax Romana, the great Roman peace which was going on at the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, a time when the glorious Roman Empire created peace throughout all the land. It might be the most impressive human empire ever created, but if you, you read all the history books, you know that, that peace was accomplished through heavy taxation on the poor, significant violence on conquered peoples. That That peace was created. That power was created through violence and theft. Or take our country and its history. And I love our country. I think the Declaration and the Constitution are two of the greatest political documents that have ever been written. For all men are created equal. It's incredible. But even that document refused to live up to its own words. <laughs> Refuse to grant human dignity and equality to people of all ethnicities. So if you read on in the Declaration, you'll find some of the most appalling and offensive things written about Native Americans. If you read the Constitution, you'll find that freedom and access were not given to blacks and Africans who lived in the early United States. And yet, I, I still maintain the Declaration is an incredible document. Here's my my point. The best human power can offer in the world contains with it, always, injustice and violence, racism, oppression. We are in no position to assess God and His power and how He uses it. We have no idea what to do with power. And any time human beings get a little bit in their hands, we, use it to ten- we tend to use it to crush other people. But not God. All the power in the world was, was in His hands, and, and He was crushed. So how, what, what empire would you and I go to, to study to understand God's use of power? <laughs> what book would you read to begin to understand why God would use, you, you, we are in no position to judge God. 
But it's not just the peak of human power contains with it ugliness. Also the, the peak of human wisdom, human brilliance. I mean, just take the last several months in our culture. University presidents from our most elite institutions, uh, Harvard, MIT, and Penn, were called to come before Congress and ask about the anti-Semitism on their campuses. And that's very directly. Are calls for genocide on your campus okay? <laughs> Are they threatening? And if you saw their answers, they were so brilliant they could not give a straight answer on, we probably shouldn't let people call for the genocide of other people on campuses. They were so brilliant, they can't answer that question. So what university are you going to go study at? Where then you'll have the intelligence to look at the world around you and judge what you see and the God who made those things. <laughs> Paul's point is, is not, you're, you're too dumb to ask those questions. His point is, you're in no position to judge God about what power really is. About what wisdom really is. And when we try to evaluate God through human perceptions of wisdom, of power, what He does looks like utter foolishness to us. No one with unlimited power suffers at the hands of their enemies. No one with unlimited brilliance closes his mouth and goes silently to his unjust crucifixion. But that's what this God did. And so Paul invites us to consider a question. Will I receive God as he is or demand he conform to my expectations? Will I build my religious life on self-sufficiency in my own intelligence? Or will I allow God re to reveal Himself to me as He really is, and I yield? Then I would ask you this morning, does God have to prove Himself to you? Give to you the sign you need in order for you to yield to Him? Are you waiting for Him to do something for you before you trust Him? Well, my question is, what, what vision of power are you using to judge Him? Or does God need to answer all the intellectual questions you have before you're willing to yield and trust Him with your life? Again, I would ask you, what intelligence do you have access to that qualifies you to judge and assess God? The cross obliterates human expectations of God. It's utter foolishness to everything we know as human beings. Which means either God is a fool or we are. And that's the cross, the first word Paul has to say. The second word he uh, speaks to is, is the choice. A choice. Now these Christians in Corinth, they've been arguing and fighting, convinced they are, they've spiritually arrived. They're brilliant, they're powerful, they're important. So Paul asks them to consider a question. In verse 26, he says to them, uh, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise. According to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. What Paul invites them to do is, is to remember who they were when they were converted. He's, he's asking them to ask the question, how did you become a Christian? How did you get converted into the way of Jesus? How did, you, how did we, you in this room, if you're a Christian, how did you become one? How did you take up life with Jesus? And one option is to say, well, I saw the truth. 
I am smart enough to see the wisdom of God. I'm capable of seeing the power of God rightly. I made a choice because I see what others don't see. And this is no doubt what some of the Corinthians thought. Because this type of thinking always leads to pride and arrogance. And this is why so many churches are places of conflict. Why so many church Christians can be very difficult to be around. Because they believe their salvation is rooted in their choice. They see what others can't, which of course makes them wiser and better and superior than those other people who can't see what they see. Of course, once you, once you think that, you're, you're necessarily going to look at the people who don't see what you see, who have different morals, different politics, a different race or ethnicity, and think, I'm better than them because I've seen what they couldn't. And I think that's what's happening at Corinth. And Corinth is a church full of people who should never have been together. It was a multi-ethnic community made of, of rich and poor, Greeks and Jews and Romans, people from all over the world. In one sense, they were a powerful representation of the gospel. There's no way these people would ever have been together apart from Jesus. But they'd forgotten the cross and God's choice. <laughs> they were not Christians. Because they were brilliant and saw what others didn't see. No, Paul says. Remember your calling. And when you remember your calling, what do you remember? And this is what Paul says next. Verse 27. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame. He's speaking of the Corinthians here. God shows you and you're all foolish. <laughs> and God shows what is weak. And that's you. And God shows what is low and despised in the world. That's you. So that no human being could boast in the presence of God. That's verses 27 through 30. See, Christian salvation is not, I, I chose God because I saw what others couldn't. Because <laughs> even what did you see? A guy getting murdered by Rome? <laughs> A guy going silently as others mock him and shame him to his death? Like, is that what you saw? Does that make you better than other people? That's what Paul's asking. Christian salvation is not, I chose God because I can, I can see the truth. No, Christian salvation is God chose the foolish, and that's me. He chose the weak. He chose the low and despised. And if he didn't choose those types of people, I wouldn't have gotten in. So what is the foolishness of God? Ultimately, that he saved us. The foolishness of God is not just Jesus dying on the cross. It's that you became a Christian. It's, it's foolish that God made me a Christian. That's what Paul is saying. He's just brutal here. Remember your salvation. Who were you before you, you, were, conversion, uh, you were converted? And he gives them a list of what they were. Foolish, weak, low, despised. And if that's what made you a Christian, you can never look down on another person. Never. You can never think yourself superior to another person because you got in because you're a fool. You believe in a crucified peasant Messiah who got shamed and humiliated by Rome. You're a fool. So am I. And fools don't think themselves superior to others. And it's why Paul ends the passage where he does. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so that's the third word. Paul leads us to describe salvation, the boast. Now this is uh, not a word we typically use anymore. Uh, and when I think about boasting, what, what most readily comes to mind is uh, having seen the NFL playoffs over the last few weeks. 
And uh, watching the Chiefs and Bills game, the Chiefs didn't play very well at the beginning, uh, and there was like, like seven straight running plays where the Bills were just running all over them. And then finally, on like the eighth play, one of the Chiefs defenders made a good play, and then he got up and he did like this incredible dance, this, this boast. Look at me and what I just did, right? And it's like, well, you just failed for seven plays. Now you did one play and you, you boast? And I, so that, that's, that's kind of what Paul is getting at. Um, but it's, it's not precise, and I really appreciate the way uh, theologian Kenneth Bailey describes what boasting is in the, the classical sense of the word. Here's how he describes it. We boast in that which we have risked everything in order to secure ourselves. What are you risking everything in to feel safe, to feel secure? Is it your intelligence, your wisdom? And the only way you're really going to feel secure in this life is if other people respect you. And they're impressed by you. They take note of you. You get the grades. You get the promotion. Then you are safe. And you'll risk everything to get the job, the career, the money you want. Or are you boasting in your success? When your kids are not calling you a loser like mine, <laughs> then, then you know you're, it's, you're okay, it's safe. What are you boasting in? Putting your security in. Because in the end, I think we only have two choices. It's either ourselves or it's the Lord. And how can you know? How can we know where our boast is placed? And I want to give you three thoughts to that end, and I'm going to take my seat. The first, um, I'm boasting in God when I bring people together, not pull them apart. See, all of 1 Corinthians 1.18 to 4.16 is about division in the local church. And so we can't read even this section this morning, verses 18 through 31, without keeping in mind Paul is addressing division in the local church here. And what he's saying is when we boast in something other than Christ, we naturally will cause division in our churches. Because when my boast is not in Christ, it's always in my intelligence, my power, my capabilities. And that always leads to division. Because centering our lives in Jesus centers them in grace, in undeserved status with God. I was a fool and he chose me. But when we push Jesus to the periphery and put our wisdom and our capabilities at the center of our religious life, we inevitably start looking at the people around us and and thinking, I see what they don't. Uh, Why don't they see this is the true way to worship God? This is the true theology they should believe. Why can't they see what I see? The only answer is because they're not as smart or powerful as you are. And then you divide from others. All division in the church is ultimately, I see what you can't. And you'll never see what I see. So I'm not going to listen. It's boasting in human power and human wisdom. Not the grace of Jesus. It's arrogance. It's pride. It's self-salvation. It's why there's so much division in the church. It's why so many have fled the church. We de-center Jesus and boast in ourselves instead. But when we boast in Christ, His grace and His kindness, His undeserved merit, Jesus gets to live where he belongs, which is in the center. And you can look around at others, and even when you see they are, we are all weak and foolish sometimes. 
we think weak and foolish thoughts. We think sometimes, I kind of despise what they're doing right now. But you remember, how was I saved? Because God chose the fools. He chose the weak. He chose the, he chose the one everyone else was despising. Those are the people God said, my salvation will get to them. And rather than standovers in judgment, we reach out our hands in grace. As Jesus did to us. Second, I'm boasting in God when my weakness doesn't crush me. See, there are moments in our lives when we'll know. And we feel our weakness, our loneliness, and we despise what we've done, the choices we've made. Maybe that's where you are this morning. You feel, you feel your failures, your inadequacies. And you compare yourselves to others and know, I am not what I wish that I was. Or you look back in your past and you have regret. And I just want to tell you the truth. If your boast is in yourself, we can't help you. But listen to what Paul says in verse 30. Uh, because of him, the Father, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Now don't miss the, the language Paul uses for us. It's not, Christ will give these things to you if you're good enough. No, Christ became these things for us that he could give them to us as grace. And what does he give to us? Righteousness. We can stand before God in the right because Christ gave that to us. Not our past life, which means our failures no longer define us, but Christ defines us because he became for us our righteousness. He became for us holiness. Last week I said, if you're in Christ, you're a saint. The word holiness is the same root word as the word Saint, Christ became for you a saint despite your failures. In Christ, you are holy. You are sainted. He became that for you so that you could share in His holiness. And He became for you redemption. He's your ticket to freedom. To a life no longer enslaved to whatever brokenness has defined your past. He has the power to redeem you from those things and set you free to be, to be free from the things you long to be free from. But again, Paul is not saying, if you, if you have enough faith, you'll get to do those. No, it's Christ became those things for you. They're gifts. Receive them as gifts. Your weakness and failures need not crush you. Belong to Christ. He became holiness, righteousness, sanctification for you. And then third and final thought, I'm, I'm boasting in God when I am surprised that I am saved. One of my first baptisms as a pastor was a girl who was living with another family at our, at our church. And they were extremely poor, rough around the edges, said words I, I don't tend to say, acted and lived very differently than I did in the way I grew up. But they were at church every Sunday. And there was a girl named Janice that started living with them that they brought into their home. Her own parents couldn't provide a stable place to live, and so they had welcomed Janice as their own daughter, and Janice wanted now to be baptized. And so I went to their home to talk to Janice about following Jesus. And as I spent time in their home and listened and took in everything around me, the, the brokenness, uh, the, the rough around the edges were evident all around me. And as I talked with her, I began wondering, is she 
is she really saved? Does she really, does she really get Jesus? I was surprised that this girl in this place with this family would want to follow Jesus. I now look back on that moment and see it rightly that that I was the problem. (laughs) Because when I looked around that house judging it, I should have been thinking about my own condition rather than theirs. What What was I really believing in that moment? That my salvation was my choice. That got me into the kingdom. I I can see and do what others can't see and do. These people don't get it, but I do. So I sat across from Janice surprised that she wanted to follow Jesus. But I should have been surprised that I wanted to follow Jesus. I should have done what Paul invited the Corinthians to do, which is ask myself, and I invite you to ask yourself, how did you become a Christian? From where did God call you out from? Was it because we were so brilliant and powerful, so important, that God saw us and thought to himself, if I don't get them, my eternal plans of the universe are in jeopardy? Of course not. My heart was turned over to God only when I saw the reality of my own sin. Incapacity to to save myself. He found me when I was weak and foolish, and yet he still opened the kingdom of God to me, just like he did Janus. And so my boast is in Jesus Christ. My security and my safety and my hope is not in anything I will ever think or anything I will ever have the power of do. No, I'm secure and safe in this life because a crucified peasant Jewish man was crushed by Roman authorities for me. And it's utter foolishness. And also the power of grace. Because I don't care how lowly you are this morning, how foolish you think you have lived, how despised you view your own history, your failures, your mistakes. Those are precisely the kinds of people God said he chose to save. The foolish, the lowly, the weak, the despised. And it's only when you see how foolish, how low, how broken you are, you're ready to hear the call of God. And that sounds like foolishness. (laughs) To a culture of power, obsessed with power, the idea that God would love you in your weakness, sounds foolish. And to religious people, The idea that God only saves those who cannot help themselves, it's complete foolishness. And it is foolishness. But the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Let me pray for us. Father, in a moment we will come to the table, which is the demonstration of your power and wisdom. No one would have guessed salvation through a crucified Messiah, risen from the dead, ascending to the right hand of the Father, now reigning with you, having defeated this world and its vision of wisdom and power. Now we can, we can the low, the despised, the foolish, can come to the table and eat with you. We thank you that you saved us when we were low and weak and foolish, or else we would have no hope. And so now, I pray, we wouldn't, we wouldn't relish in that, in that foolishness, but we would come to, to you, our wisdom and our power. So bring us to your table now by your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.